This conversation was recorded June 14th, 2022. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations with BC Hepatitis Network. My name is Carrie, and I'm joined, as always, by Daryl. And today we are joined by Shelley. Thanks, Carrie, and, and welcome, everyone. Um, today we have uh, Shelley with us, uh, who's going to talk about living with cirrhosis. Hi, Shelley. Welcome. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Carrie. <laughs> So, Shelly, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, I live in northern BC in a small town. Um, there's about 7,000 people, maybe 10 in the surrounding area. It's slowly getting bigger. We don't have a lot in our community um, for options uh, medically, but I have pretty much grown up here my whole life. I just turned 46. And I have a biological daughter and a stepdaughter and a granddaughter. I've had cirrhosis for about seven years now. And I had a transplant, a liver transplant, almost a year ago in Vancouver. It'll be a year on June the 22nd. Wow. So as we are recording this on June 14th, you're getting close to that one, one year mark. Congratulations. I am. And I have a party on the weekend. Ooh. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> yes. I missed the invite or. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. Well, I didn't know if you'd want to come all the way up. <laughs> it's a bit of a hike. For it's sure. a bit of a hike. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll send along my, my, uh, best wishes. How's that? Thank you. <laughs> you know how, how, how important it is. I certainly do. Been, it is. It's a big milestone and I'm quite excited. So yeah. Well, I think, think back to when we first met. It's some years ago now, isn't it? Yes, it is. You're, yeah. you're doing so much better now. It's really, really positive to see. So much better. And um, so uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just phenomenal. I feel I'm still not ever going to be a hundred percent, but compared to what I was and the downward hill slope I was on and not even knowing I was going to wake up every morning, it's amazing to have a second chance and be able to breathe clearly and not have fluid in my lungs and be able to go out for a walk and enjoy it and do things that I haven't been able to do for so many years. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. I, I think that leads in really well to one of our first questions, which is how do you explain cirrhosis to someone who doesn't know what it is? Well, I think the most important thing is that when you hear the word cirrhosis, everybody automatically thinks you're an alcoholic, that you excessively drink, and that you've done all this damage to yourself. And that's not the case. 
you can have cirrhosis for so many reasons. It can be uh, bile duct issues, uh, fatty liver disease, um, hepatitis, autoimmune issues, genetic issues. There's so many things. And even someone who mildly drinks can end up with it. It doesn't matter. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. And I still ended up with it. So like it, it happens. And, and a lot of people think because it's your liver, oh, well, your liver regenerates, like, it's no big deal, you'll be fine. But once you reach the level of cirrhosis, it does not regenerate that scar tissue buildup from every little thing, any damage that's done, it does not regenerate. So once you get to a certain point, it can't come back. Then, of course, you start experiencing things that are not necessarily directly caused by, by or, or the liver, outside the liver, like, like we see with people who have uh, advanced liver disease from hepatitis C mm-hmm. or B, for that matter. Yeah, it, and it affects. It's amazing what your liver controls and what it affects when it starts to go downhill. Uh, I mean, it affects your heart, it affects your lungs, it affects your weight, it affects your memory. (laughs) You know, you're exhausted all the time, you're emotional, you feel constantly weak and tired. I still have issues now with my memory and speech. I forget things constantly. uh, And that is from an ammonia buildup. And it's called hepatic encephalopathy. And because your liver isn't healthy and it cannot filter out toxins like a healthy liver can, it the buildup can go into your brain, it can go into your lungs, like you can have ascites and end up with fluid in your in your abdomen and have to have it drained constantly. A lot of people have to go in and have that done. Um, edema, my legs were so swollen, I couldn't wear shoes for... I don't know how many years all I could wear was slippers. And that's quite interesting when it's winter. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So you mentioned about perceptions about what people think about having cirrhosis being related to alcoholism. So that would be like stigma. So did you experience a lot of stigma about your condition? I did. I did actually. Um, Because alcoholism runs in my family. People that don't know me just heard my last name and were like, oh, you know, or even the doctors like that didn't know me would say, well, how much do you drink? That's the first question that I get asked. Well, how much do you drink? I said, well, I don't drink. They're like, well, no, like you have like one or two drinks on a weekend or a night. And I was like, no, I don't drink. And they asked my mom, they asked my daughter, they contacted my actual healthcare, you know, provider, my um, home doctor, and everyone said, no, she doesn't. And then I had blood tests to prove it. And then it was like, okay, well, then now we'll figure out what it is that's causing your liver to be affected. Yeah, nobody should have to face that that sort of stigma, whether they drank or not, of course. Yeah. It's really should be about helping to improve uh, outcomes for people. 
Mm-hmm. Not, not and I understand that, but I also understand with the transplant list, it's important to know because if you're giving someone a, a new liver, you want to make sure that they're going to be able to keep it healthy and not just continue down the same path. So I understand needing to know, but I don't think it should be the first question that they ask and are right. so I wasn't concerned speaking with. so much to the transplant listing process, uh, but uh, yeah, just the general stigma that people can face. Yes, for, definitely. For different, different diseases and or causes. The cause, to me at least, is mostly less relevant. I mean, obviously, yeah. when, when you're talking about um, uh, a transplant, uh, you know, being being uh, assessed for a transplant, those are very much smoking is another one that you, you can't uh, in, engage in and, and remain on That's a correct. transplant list. So, but, but, you know, we try not to discriminate against people that do smoke, even though we, you know, choose not to ourselves. Yeah. But anyway, this may not be something we want to use. It's just, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Just how, how we approach it at mm-hmm. the network, we try to approach it as, you know, yeah, not to discriminate or, or, or stigmatize anyone. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. And, it sh- and that's the thing is it shouldn't be. It doesn't, no matter whether you have heart disease and they look at you and say that, well, you're overweight, that's why you have that problem. I mean, no, that isn't why. Or lung disease. Or lung disease because you smoked or. Yeah, what's the first question anything. people will ask if they hear somebody they know of who has lung disease? Were they a smoker? Yes. I mean, that would, I mean, I've even caught myself saying that. Mm-hmm. That's not right. No, but there's so many particles in the air as it is that you can end up with lung disease without. Yeah. Ever smoking. So it's. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, so few people smoke now. I mean, it's hard to imagine that smoking is a lead cause for lung cancer anymore, but. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I don't know. I I see so few people smoking. Certainly, I don't hardly know anyone personally that smokes. No, I think it just goes back to what we've always been taught when we were younger. And so that sort of sticks in the back of your mind all the time and changing your way of thought sometimes can be hard. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you need to, because you need to realize that there are so many health issues that people suffer from that are not related to the general thoughts that were put in our head as kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and lung cancer is a perfect example of that, of how many people that you will come across who have lung cancer have never smoked. And it's just something else entirely that, uh, that started that process, whether that, you know, was, you know, related to their workplace or genetics or what have you. It could be any, any number of things that they didn't necessarily have control over. Just like you said about uh, cirrhosis, there's so many causes the laundry list. It is very long list. So Shelly, you touched on this a little bit when you were exploring what cirrhosis is, but before your transplant, what did a day 
with cirrhosis kind of look or feel like for you? What was that experience like? Well, to be completely candid, it would be like hell. <laughs> you, you feel like you're dying. Every breath is exhausting to take. Um, there's so much fluid around you and in, inside of you that moving hurts, breathing hurts, um, even being touched, having your skin touched hurt. Um, I lived in like almost muumu dresses, basically just those maxi dresses for years because I couldn't handle anything touching my skin. People look at you funny because your eyes are yellow and your skin is yellow and you kind of look like the walking dead. <laughs> You're constantly tired and just weak and exhausted you lose your appetite, things taste funny, things don't taste great, you're nauseous, you get to a point where you can be throwing up multiple times a day. Did you find yourself isolating a lot? Just not going Very, out. always. I lost a lot of friends. You find out quickly who your friends are and your family because you can't be the person you used to be. So you're not able to go out and visit. You're not able to go and play with someone else's kids. Uh, you can't even play with your own kids. You're, you're tired. You can't make dinner. You're having a nap here and there. I couldn't drive long distances. Uh, I had to move into town because I, I just couldn't drive. And then I eventually had to give up my license because of um, the hepatic encephalopathy, it was not safe for me to drive. I would be sitting here having a conversation and I'd fall asleep in the middle of the conversation. From the time of diagnosis to the time that you got a transplant, was it sort of incrementally progressive? It pro progressively got worse or? It did it progressively get worse. In the beginning, I started with having swelling in my legs and just being tired. And those were my two main complaints when I went to the doctor. And without tests or anything, I was put on water pills. I was on water pills for a couple of years and it wasn't helping. It wasn't getting any better. It wasn't necessarily getting much worse, but it wasn't helping. And I was getting tired. I was starting to get really sore. I was forgetting things. But you still I, hadn't been diagnosed with... with uh... I still had not been diagnosed. Oh my gosh. It took my doctor being away on holidays and a doctor filling in, a student doctor or somebody coming into the... I don't even remember who she was, but thankfully for her... Um, I, I went in and I said, you know, I'm just really not feeling good. Like there's some, I know there's something wrong. And she's like, okay, well, let's do some blood work. And I was like, thank you. That's all I've been asking for. And so I had a bunch of blood work done. And the next week I got called in by my GP who was back. And he walked into the office and said, oh, you're really sick. <laughs> so that was kind of the start and they said oh you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease 
And I said, okay, well, what do I do about it? Well, watch your salt intake and look it up. Oh. So there was never anybody, like there was no pamphlets. There was no websites to go to. There was nothing discussed or given out. Um, I wasn't sent to a dietitian, nothing. So it took a lot of trial and error and figuring out what I could eat and what I couldn't eat to make it as healthy as I could be. But it just kept deteriorating. It didn't seem to matter no matter what I did. Because we live in the north, it took a long time to get a CAT scan and an MRI and ultrasounds booked and I have to travel to go do those. But once that happened, they knew for sure that it was cirrhosis. It had advanced. It had advanced. And then from there, it was blood work once a month and try to keep an eye on on things and it got to the point that I was so tired like I said I would just fall asleep or I would slur my words and people thought I was drunk or stoned or you know high on something (laughs) Um, taking pain pills or whatever Um, but that wasn't the case and it turned out that it was my ammonia level and it was going through the roof And they put me on medication for it. And it still didn't seem to help enough. And I ended up going into a coma. So, wow. Yeah. You touched a little bit on the fact that you didn't get a whole whole lot of knowledge imparted on you by physicians or by people in, uh, in healthcare. What... What did you do to kind of fill that gap? Are there like resources that you would recommend or was it just really hard to find good information? Well, dietitian wise, until I got to talk to a dietitian from the transplant clinic, I really didn't have any good information. Um, As far as communicating with other people that were in similar situations, it was really hard to find. There is nothing in the North, so there was no support groups or anything available. Um, I think there are some in the Lower Mainland. But basically, I resorted to Facebook and found a few groups for people that have cirrhosis. Unfortunately, they were all in the States. So medically-wise, it was completely different. Like we couldn't, they're like, Oh, well you can get this or you could do that. But I couldn't access those things. And the prescription names were all different. So when we talk about things, they weren't always, we had to like confirm them, but it was really nice to have other people to talk to that were going through the same things as me. And then I didn't feel so crazy and so isolated anymore. I finally had someone that understood what I was going through and I could understand what they were going through. 
Otherwise, I basically had to Google everything. <laughs> as much as me. I say, don't you found, Google you me. You found me. I was somehow. I did. I? You were very helpful. <laughs> yes, Daryl was very helpful. That would be um, the he, time to cue in a, a, a promo for the for the helpline. <laughs> yes, yes, because I did speak to Daryl, and he did set me up with um, a few people to talk to, which was very helpful, and he did give me some options of sites to go to and and people to talk to. And that's that's so good to hear though that you found help for half, even though the different issue causing the same end result, right? And, exactly. and I think that that's <laughs> really important though that that people realize that that you know the the helpline and Daryl and and our team, you know, we're we're here to certainly provide whatever information that we can, even if you're dealing with things that are not related to hepatitis. You know, Daryl has a lot of information that still applies, even if, you know. Absolutely. And the connections. And he yeah. knows a few people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So if you'd like to call Daryl, you can call Daryl at one 888 7578 Sorry, uh, I was laughing. I that's don't know okay. <laughs> the number will be in the description. So I think they're like kind of to go along with that. Like how did people in whether that was people online or people in your, your everyday life, like how did they support you through this and what can others do to provide support to somebody in their own life who's living with cirrhosis? As a caregiver, I would say it's really important that you make sure you have someone to talk to as well, because you're going to get very frustrated and you're going to feel tired and burnt out and like you can't help. And it's going to be a very emotional process for you. As someone with cirrhosis, it's important that any caregiver or friend or family member is, is there and welcoming and willing to support you, but give you the space you need because we all want our independence and we all want to be able to do things for ourselves. And we might struggle sometimes, but when we want the help, we will ask, but having someone take that independence away from you before you're prepared emotionally and physically for it, it doesn't help. I had a lot of people come to me with, oh, try this juice cleanse, try that. This will make it better. These supplements I sell work the best. (laughs) And it's like, no, none of that is going to help. It doesn't, it's, yeah, it, it may have worked for you and you may feel healthy, but not everyone is the same. And yeah, yeah. I'm dealing with, with the same thing. I had a friend who I'd known for years, but she was selling some snake oil and uh, kept persisting and calling me because I'd shared with her, you know, my situation and I had hepatitis. And uh, finally, I had to tell her, look, stop. Don't call me if that's what you're going to talk about. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. hear it. I mean, I put up with it you know, for several calls, but uh, just come on, quit it. Yeah, and I think any of us who has had any sort of health issues has dealt with that. But I can only imagine how much worse it would be when you're dealing with something liver related, because, you know, everything is branded as a detox and like, you know, what do people think the liver does? Right. And, and so, you know, um, so yeah, I can only imagine how much more pervasive that probably is when you're, 
you know, when you're dealing with a, a liver issue as opposed to like, you know, other, other things, you still get those recommendations, but the, you know, uh, people like, it probably seems a little bit more off the wall, whereas, you know, it's, it's a little bit more of a direct target, uh, that yeah. is not helpful and not accurate. Well, exactly. could actually be dangerous for a person with liver disease. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is very dangerous actually. And, and like my daughter said, like, well, so if I broke my leg, I wouldn't just go, oh, you know what? A Band-Aid will cure that. No, you need a cast or you need surgery or, you know, whatever. Like it's, I broke my leg, so I'm going to go for a run. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, no, that's not going to, yeah, just walk it off. It'll be fine. That, yeah. That's the other one, you know, the expectation about what you're capable of doing. Sometimes it's not obvious. I mean, if you have, if your skin is yellow and your eyes are yellow, obviously people are going to see that. But quite often with uh, less severe uh, fibrosis, maybe not cirrhosis. And many people with cirrhosis don't, aren't yellow. No, a lot of them aren't. And I wasn't for a long time. And it would change. Some days my eyes would be really yellow and other days they wouldn't be. And some days I would look great and people would think, oh, you're cured. You're all better. And the next day I'd be down and they'd be like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? And I was like, well, I felt good yesterday, but I don't feel good today. <laughs> and it is up and down and it is moment to moment. So I, I don't plan things because you never know. It can change within an hour how you're going to feel. So making plans was just not an option for me. So what kind of you know, life adjustments or what things did you have to change um, when you got cirrhosis and started having symptoms? Like how did, uh, how did that impact just like kind of, I guess, what you were doing day to day or what you know, things you did to try to feel better? For me, my heating pad was my best friend. <laughs> Mine still um, is. Yeah, it, it still is, but um, it was definitely uh, very helpful. You have to be really careful. I have to avoid uh, people that even have a cold. Just being around anybody that was sick at all or had somebody sick in their family, in their home. Um, and that's not even speaking COVID. That's just talking the flu, a cold, or you know, anything like that. Um, staying very clean and um, staying away from cats. Uh, like kitty litter, birds, things like that. Uh, gardening, anything that can give you an infection because your immunity goes down the hill. Um, I was always cold. And so I always had a blanket on and extra clothes. And my daughter would be sitting there in a tank top and shorts and I'd have the heat on and the fireplace on and my heating pad and she'd be sweating away and I'd be freezing to death. <laughs> Do you find that's persisted even now? Actually, now I'm the opposite. I have, I run hot. I have like hot flashes and <laughs> I hardly ever use my heating pad because I get too hot. <laughs> um, I had to stop any over-the-counter medications, like um, even like calcium and magnesium and things like that, I had to check first with my doctor and make sure what levels I should have and how much I could have. No Advil, uh, limit your Tylenol, 
What about vitamin D3 or, or B vitamins? Did they talk to you at all about that? Yep. I take vitamin B. I take vitamin D. I take a calcium. I also take magnesium because you'll find that your magnesium will drop and you'll get cramps in your legs and your hands and they'll seize up. And it's so painful. And people will say, oh, use magnesium cream. It'll help doesn't help. <laughs> you have to actually take magnesium religiously daily. Well, and, and it's a conversation that's best had with your care. Yes. Yeah. Your caregiver, your doctor will go over anything. They'll, they're really good. I'm, I found I had to check. I still do everything against my medications because you end up on a lot of medications and some of them can get pretty expensive if you don't have the appropriate healthcare coverage or extended healthcare coverage. Hmm. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing with, you know, supplements, especially too, was that it's probably good general advice for anyone to check with their doctor before they start taking them, even though they're generally safe, but, you know, it becomes even more important when you are post-transplant or with cirrhosis or, you know, any other health problems, but because yeah, they can be super, super important, but also it's like, well, if you need to supplement, you probably also need to be monitored, right? So you definitely do. Yeah. Monitoring is key. Um, and there's certain things out there that you can't take with medications. Yeah. So do you have Once, any additional, I would love to see some kind of pamphlets or some write-ups that we're in doctor's offices that, you know, when a, when you are diagnosed with something, you have something to leave with because once you're diagnosed with whatever you're diagnosed with, you kind of go into shell shock and you don't necessarily hear what's going on or you can't remember it. Like that just, you're just floored that this has happened to you and it's come from nowhere or you may have felt there was something wrong, but you didn't know what. And it would be nice if there was resources written out that could be handed out and be like, hey, here is some information to get you started. Um, and then when you're ready to come back with a list of questions, we can talk about it, but this gives you a basis to start. I couldn't agree more. I think they should physically hand it to you as a doctor. Like, I think. I agree. I agree. Bitch. Because just walking in and seeing a wall full of stuff, mm -hmm. I may not be in the right mindset to be looking through it. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, over the years, lots of people I've talked to about this very issue is, is that people are left with questions unanswered. And, and unless they go in with a list of questions, and even then, quite often the doctors or the, you know, the care team are like, no, nah, don't you worry about it. You know, we, we've got this. I mean, yeah. they may not say that, but that's the attitude. But, yeah, I think it would be really helpful if, you know, just at a minimum, right? If you were to get a diagnosis, and they were to hand you a piece of paper that says, this is your diagnosis. These are the tests we're doing. Here's when I want to see you again. And, you know, just like very basic would, you know, not take too long to write out, but yeah. instead of the, instead of the patient sitting in that chair being responsible for taking those notes, the doctor writes it down and they hand it to you. Right. And, exactly. and well, it, on a subsequent visit, you can go into more depth or yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
I mean, what I always tell people is there's two main questions you want to ask. What are you going to do? And when are you going to do it? And that may sound oversimplified, but actually some people have had to wait tremendous amounts of time for care, even in the U.S. It isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't by any means perfect there. It's just, no, it's not. It's just different, you know, uh, but there's still people are still having to wait with unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, it's like if, you know, if somebody watching this is in that position and they have unanswered questions and they don't know, um, you know, and they know it's going to be a while until they see their healthcare provider again, they can certainly call our helpline and we can try to get the right information to them and, you know, figure out the resources that are going to be the most helpful because, you know, even if it's not directly related to hepatitis, we are still here to help people get through the healthcare system and find the information that they need and the correct information. Definitely. And Daryl was able to give me access to like the BC Liver Society and things like that, that I wasn't even aware of beforehand. So Daryl, how can people reach you if uh, they want to chat? Our helpline number is one 411 7578 and call anytime. If, uh, if no one picks up, please leave a message and we'll get back to you. So thank you again, Shelley, for joining us today and sharing about your experiences with us and with everybody listening. And for the rest of you listening, we will see you next time. Thank you. Learn more about viral hepatitis and the BC Hepatitis Network by visiting bchep.org and contact us at podcasts at bchep.org. You can also find us on social media via the links in the show notes. For more episodes, visit bchep.org slash podcasts or subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app.